This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Frontiers in Diagnosis and Treatment of Neurologic Diseases. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Maggie Wong, and I'll first go over again, some terminology just to make sure we're on the same page. We'll go through the cranial nerves today, then talk about just some basic functions. The brainstem is very complicated, um, but I'll try to give you uh, an overview of the things that it controls and its important functions. And then we'll go over a few diseases where the brainstem is really central in causing neurologic disease. Last week, you remembered that I threw up this picture of neurons, which are really the central units in the nervous system. In terms of processing, they contained uh, the genetic data that is translated, and then uh, they make connections, they form connections and allow us to do and control our body and also receive sensory information. Back in high school, you might remember that the in the cell body, there is a nucleus, which is what contains the DNA and genetic data. And I, the terminology I wanted to introduce you today is that not only is this the nucleus within the cell body, but we also call in neuroscience have another structure that we call the nucleus, which is any type of collection of cell bodies that are together and that form a unit or form connections and are closely together, we also call that a nucleus. So um, different from what you might understand the nucleus is. And then the plural of that is nuclei. Okay, the cranial nerves are a group of 12 paired nerves that contain sensory, motor, and sometimes mixed fibers. Uh, they control smell, taste, everything in the head, basically um, facial movements, sensation in the face. And most of them traverse through the brainstem. The first cranial nerve is the olfactory nerve. It's not on here, but smell goes directly into the olfactory bulb and into the olfactory cortex. So it bypasses the brainstem. And then the second cranial nerve, the optic nerve, although it crosses closely along the brainstem, it doesn't actually, uh, none of the fibers actually enter the brainstem. But the last 10 nerves, uh, which are listed here, directly feed into the brainstem where they have connections and they're able to communicate with uh, different nuclei. They form nuclei and help control eye movements. They uh, receive sensory information and they also uh, process special senses like taste and hearing as well as uh, input from the inner ears. And you can see here, uh, where the different cranial nerves are entering and the different type of nuclei that they form. Uh, this is, for example, the ocular motor nucleus that controls a lot of eye movements. And then you can see it uh, can connect with other 
the nuclei that control eye movements too. And then some nerves like the trigeminal nerve uh, comes in and actually send, has connections all up and down the entire brainstem itself. And so it just kind of speaks to the complexity of the brainstem. And the brainstem really is a passageway from fibers that are coming in and going out to the brain from the spinal cord. But it's more than just a passageway. There's a lot of processing that also goes in the spinal cord, in the brainstem. And here you can see it within the brain. This is the top part of the brainstem, the midbrain. The middle sort of round fatter part is the pons, and then the lower part is the medulla. Brainstem is also critical in controlling autonomic reflex centers, controls breathing, heart rate, blood pressure. So all the vital functions of our body that keep us alive. It also has a center called the reticular activating system that is critical for controlling consciousness. So communicating with thalamus and the cortex to allow us to be conscious. So the, as you can tell, the brainstem is just a vital part of the brain. And in fact, when people talk about brain death or when people are in a coma, that means death of the brainstem because when we lose this connection, we really lose any ability to, um, the brain loses ability to communicate with the spinal cord or to be able to communicate with the outside world. Okay, so we're gonna go through each part of the brainstem and I'm just gonna highlight some of the main parts of the brainstem that are important. So this is not going to be exhaustive. The midbrain, the important structures here are structures like the substantia nigra, the ventral tegmental area that you may have heard of. These are areas that have a lot of dopamine neurons. The substantia nigra is really important for motor function. It communicates with the basal ganglia and that controls motor function. When substantia nigra neurons degenerate, that's what causes diseases like Parkinson's disease. Ventral tegmental area, which you see here, really has broad connections to the limbic system, the hippocampus and the cortex, and is also involved in movement, motor planning, but critically decision-making and motivation. And it's thought to, um, when there's something wrong with a VTA, it's thought to underlie addiction. The midbrain also coordinates a lot of the vision and hearing information that we receive uh, from uh, the eyes and the ears. It's also the attachment for cranial nerves three and four, which control eye movements. And you can see here, this is just a simplified pathway of how the brain controls horizontal movements and our eye movements are yoked together. And in order to coordinate this, there has to be um, a sensory input from the eyes. And then also the motor units are connected by these interneurons, which make sure the muscles move together. So when the outer muscle contracts on the right side, the inner muscle um, on the left side has to contract so that the eyes move together in the same fashion. 
Moving on to the pons, the pons is the kind of bulbous region. It is another name for bridge because it bridges the brainstem with the cerebellum. And it is also the attachment for cranial nerves five, six, seven, and eight. So five, the trigeminal nerve is by far the largest cranial nerve. You can see here how big it is compared to these um, little fibers that are coming out. And that's because it controls all sensation from the face. It also gets sensation from the meninges or the coverings around the brain. And it takes up a lot of real estate. So you can imagine how important sensation in the face, inside the mouth is um, because it's such a large structure. And then again, it goes into the nucleus in the pons, but again, it spreads out all throughout the brainstem. And then six, seven, and eight cranial nerves, which another nerve that controls my eye movement, facial movement, and then also hearing in the vestibular system kind of come out at this junction between the pons and the medulla, which is the last part of the brainstem. The medulla, I remember last week I told you uh, the motor cortex controls muscle function by coming down, starting out from the frontal cortex and going down. Uh, well, it uh, goes through the thalamus and then it actually crosses in the medulla. So that's why the right side of the brain controls the left side of your body is because these crossing fibers cross at the bottom of the medulla and then they go to the corticospinal motor tracts in the spinal cord. The medulla is also important uh, for a lot of the vital centers. It uh, controls cardiac, the beating and blood pressure, also controls the tone in our vessels, and then also has these respiratory groups that control breathing and communicate with respiratory centers in the pons too to make sure we don't stop breathing. And it is the attachment for the last four cranial nerves. So 9, 10, 11, and 12, those control sensation and taste from the back of the tongue. They um, are sensors for how well the heart is beating, how strong the pressure is in the arteries going up to the brain. Also control salivary gland function, gut function, and sensation in the back of the throat, and then tongue movements too. So as you can imagine, the brainstem has a lot of different nuclei from all these cranial nerves. It's also receiving a lot of the input from the spinal cord that we learned about last week, and then also uh, sending out information from the brain. And so this is kind of just an illustrative case. If there is you know, any damage to the brainstem, even in a small part, that can really wreak havoc on the body. And this is a sort of uh, a, an example lesion of the brainstem, which is at the top of the medulla, uh, kind of before it hits the pons. And this is a stroke that we sometimes see called medial medullary syndrome, when it's caused by 
clots that go to either the spinal artery or vertebral or basilar arteries, but it causes uh, ischemia or loss of function to just the middle part of this um, medulla, small part of the brainstem. And what that does is weakness on the same side of the tongue, because here you have the region where the hypoglossal nucleus comes in, the hypoglossal nerve is the last cranial nerve that controls tongue function. And so if that's lesion, then tongue on that side is weak. But here, this is where that those motor tracks are going after they've already crossed. So you get opposite weakness in the arm and leg. And also this middle part is a part of the sensory tract uh, which has also crossed over already. So you get loss of sensation on the opposite side as well. And so depending on where the lesion is, um, you can get just a constellation of findings. And one key feature of damage to the brainstem is damage on one side actually causes crossed findings. So, um, so on one side of the face, you might have something affected and then on the opposite side of the body, we'll have um, another tract affected. And that's just how, because the fibers are crossing in the brainstem and causing those crossed findings. Okay, and the last thing I wanted to go over is the trigeminal vascular complex. As you remember, the trigeminal nerve is by far the largest cranial nerves nerve. And, um, here you can see where it gets pain receptors that are coming from the dura or the covering around the brain. And uh, going through the, it actually has three parts, the trigeminal nerve, V1, uh, which also control, which also receives sensation from the top of the face, V2 in the middle, and then V3 at the bottom. And they feed into the center. What I think is very interesting about this nucleus, this trigeminal nucleus, is that if you look all along the pathway, so from the vessel to the pain fiber to the ganglion where the neuron is, and then to the uh, second order trigeminal nucleus neuron, you see all these receptors and you can really see that all these receptors are targets to the medications we have for headache. And we think that the trigeminal nucleus caudalis is a really major part of headache pathology and that by targeting this region, reducing its activity, we think that uh, that's a lot of how um, we might be able to bring down headaches or at least affect headaches in some way. So I just think that's interesting that, you know, all the medications we have for headache, they all you know, could theoretically act along the trigeminal pathway. So unless I marked it in my slide, all of these images are from these two references. And with that, I would love to introduce uh, Dr. Rebecca Michael. She's just an incredible headache neurologist and 
Here, she completed medical school at the University of Nevada School of Medicine, um, or, and, and then she uh, went on to do her residency at the esteemed Cleveland Clinic in Ohio. And she also did a headache fellowship here there before she coming here. She's now director of the headache fellowship here at UCSF and cares for patients with severe headaches, both in the hospital and also in the outpatient clinics. So um, thank you for joining us today, Rebecca. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you all who's joining. Um, so as Dr. Wong had mentioned, I am a um, clinical assistant professor in the Headache Center, and we'll just go through an overview of a little bit of just a flavor of what we see and, and just a little bit about headaches and how we think about them um, in the Headache Center. So first of all, what causes headaches? And I don't know if any of you have ever been familiar with or have heard about patients who during brain surgery sometimes will will actually the patient will initially be asleep but then they'll wake the patient up um, and have them do a task as they're operating to make sure that that parts of the brain that are responsible for those types of functions aren't affected but but it is pretty amazing that the patients don't feel any pain during this so what, what exactly causes headache and, and pain in the head? Headache is caused by either traction, displacement, or inflammation of pain-sensitive structures in the head or neck. And actually, most regions of the brain tissue, the brain parenchyma, do not produce pain. Pain-sensitive structures include actually the scalp. There's a lot of small nerve fibers in the scalp. So if somebody has a scalp wound, that obviously will cause pain, the scalp blood supply, uh, head and neck muscles, uh, blood vessels also can contribute to pain. And if there's any type of abnormality, a tear of the blood vessel or a clot in the blood vessel, that can contribute to pain. Also, as Dr. Wong had gone through, some of the, the cranial nerves, particularly the trigeminal um, uh, nerve and nucleus, and then nine and 10 also have um, areas in which pain can be received. Parts of the meninges or the dura mater, the covering of the brain, particularly at the base of the brain, can be really susceptible to pain. And then also areas that are also involved in pain are the paraaqueductal gray and, the, and part of the thalamus, the sensory thalami. So everybody has probably had a headache at some point in their life, whether it was from um, one cause or another, which we'll go through, but the lifetime prevalence of headache exceeds 95%. Headache is actually among the most frequent reasons that patients will visit a physician. It accounts for 12 million visits per year in the U.S. and is actually a huge um, cost in our healthcare system of upwards of $31 billion per year. And migraine is the most common type of a primary headache that prompts a visit to a provider. So when I say primary headache, we think in, in the field of headache, we differentiate headaches between primary and secondary. A primary headache is a headache that's due to overactivity or problems with the pain-sensitive structures of the brain and the cranium. It's not a symptom of an underlying disease. And some examples of this include migraine headache, which we'll talk quite a bit about today, things like tension type headache, 
um, or cluster headache, which is a very rare primary headache, but something that we often see. And a primary headache is diagnosed based on history and physical exam. So by us talking to the patient, hearing about what their headache feels like, symptoms associated with it, also by making sure their physical exam um, is normal, that's, that's typically how we diagnose. Um, and we don't need testing in order to, to diagnose a primary headache disorder. So secondary headaches are headaches that are due to another condition, including an underlying illness, a structural abnormality. Sometimes certain medications can contribute to headaches, trauma. These uh, examples of these can actually be if somebody has a headache that's coming from some neck arthritis, we call that cervicogenic headache, headache that's secondary to a tumor or an infection, especially if it's involving the blood vessels or the covering of the brain aneurysms, abnormalities of the blood vessel, actually using too many medications can contribute to headache. And, and for secondary headaches, this is something that we think about when we hear a patient that's describing their headache. Um, and also sometimes we can uh, think of these based upon the physical exam and the neurological exam. And then these are diagnosed based on uh, testing typically. So when we're thinking about secondary headache disorders, um, in medical school, we love mnemonics. And this is a very common mnemonic that we use, SNOOP4. So you're snooping, you're looking for secondary headaches. Um, the S stands for systemic. So if a patient comes in, they're having some fevers, chills, weight loss. If they also have some other kind of underlying disease, like a cancer, immunosuppressed, HIV, those are all things that we think could this be a headache secondary to something or a sequela of one of those? If a patient also is complaining of some very abnormal neurological symptoms, or if on their exam, we find something that is abnormal, that's also something that raises the suspicion for a secondary headache. If the onset is very sudden, we call this a thunderclap headache. And that's when a headache can reach its intensity in usually seconds, definitely less than a minute of 10 out of 10 all of a sudden. Um, that's something that's concerning for a secondary headache. And then if somebody is a bit older, we know diseases can become more prevalent as people age. So we tend to worry a little bit more if somebody says that I've, you know, never really had a history of any type of headache. And now all of a sudden I'm starting to develop these very severe headaches, especially if they're progressive. So if it's something that starts and it's continuously getting more and more severe over time, precipitated by Valsalva, that means if you're um, holding your breath or coughing, having a bowel movement, that's another reason that we think potentially could this be a secondary headache? Sometimes some increased pressure in the brain um, could be uh, responsible. If it's postural, meaning when you lay down, it gets a lot worse, or when you stand up, um, it completely goes away. Uh, those are some reasons that we think of secondary headaches. And then also papilledema, that's a term that we use um, when we're looking in the back of patient's eyes. It's, it's, a little bit of abnormality or swelling that makes us think of higher pressure um, in the spinal cord fluid that surrounds the brain. 
So when we think of these secondary headaches, we try to differentiate between what needs to be seen right away and what could be maybe addressed within a few hours to days. Again, as I mentioned, that sudden onset headache, a thunderclap headache, that's something that we tend to think um, is very urgent. It could be an abnormality of the blood vessels. And, and definitely something that should be evaluated urgently. If somebody's having fever and meningismus, which is actually really stiffness of uh, the neck or symptoms of uh, sensitivity to light, that could be concerning for an infection. Again, papilledema, as I went through before, but if patients are also having some reduced levels of consciousness, actually increased pressure in the eye, um, not chronic glaucoma, but there is something that can happen, acute glaucoma that can cause really severe pain in one of the eyes, redness of the eyes. That's something that should be addressed immediately. And then some things um, that should be addressed within a couple of days. There's something called temporal arteritis. It's inflammation of the blood vessel that um, is around the temporal or the side region of the head. It's an autoimmune condition. If somebody also has the papilledema, but they don't have any type of reduced level of consciousness or their neurological exam is otherwise normal. Um, also, the any type of systemic illness. So as I mentioned, malignancy, or if there's a history of immunosuppression, HIV. And then again, an elderly patient, particularly somebody much older than 50 uh, with a new headache with some cognitive changes. I will say with all of that, that secondary headaches are rare. Um, these are just a couple of examples of studies in a review of 328 patients who had a non-focal headache, only 1.5% had clinically relevant results. There's another review that was done of 402 patients who had chronic headaches and abnormalities were only identified in 3.7% of patients. So again, going through these primary versus secondary headaches, something that's very helpful for us as headache specialists is utilizing this diagnostic classification criteria called the ICHD3, stands for the International Classification of Headache Disorders. It's diagnostic criteria used throughout the world for all primary and secondary headaches. It was created by neurologists and headache specialists and it's actually easily accessible for the public to view online. And this is just an example of what the primary um, web page looks like. And on this side, it has a very nice outline, again, of the different types of primary headaches as well as different types of secondary headaches. And you can see here that the three main types of primary headaches are migraine, tension type headache, and then something called the trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias, which includes what I had briefly mentioned before, cluster headaches. So in medical school, we often do, we go through cases that, that helps us obviously learn. And it's also an interesting way to go through different types of potential diagnoses. So this, this is a made up case but I'll go through that it's a 34-year-old female. She has a history of headaches that began with the onset of her menstrual cycle. So around 13 years old, she started having these headaches. They occur at a frequency of about two to three times a month. So the rest of the month, she doesn't have any headaches. These are just really two to three times, two to three 
different days of headaches. The duration of the headaches, they last four to 12 hours. The pain is unilateral, meaning it's one-sided. It's either retroorbital behind the eye or temporal, which is on one of the sides of um, the head. The pain is described as severe, pulsating and throbbing, and it's associated with nausea, vomiting, and sensitivity to light. So, so this patient's pretty disabled when she has these headaches. She states over the years that there really hasn't been a significant change in the quality or the frequency of the headaches. She also denies any associated neurological symptoms, including any weakness, numbness, or slurred speech with these headaches. On her neurological exam, when she was examined in the clinic, her strength, her sensation, um, the back of her eyes, everything looked normal, no papilledema. So what's the diagnosis here? This is actually what um, we have classified as episodic migraine without aura. So how do you make the diagnosis of migraine? Migraine, according to the ICHD3 criteria, is uh, a headache that a patient has to have typically at least five attacks before we give the diagnosis of migraine. Uh, the headache attacks last four to 72 hours, either untreated uh, or unsuccessfully treated. The headache has at least two of the following four characteristics. So it's typically either one-sided, pulsating quality, moderate or severe pain intensity, and or aggravated by or caused avoidance of routine physical activity. And during the headache, um, in order to make this diagnosis as well, a patient has to have at least nausea and or vomiting. Um, and or photophobia sensitivity to light and phonophobia sensitivity to sound. Also not better accounted for by another ICHD3 diagnosis. So some migraine epidemiology, it occurs in females more than males at a ratio of three to one. It's actually the third most common disease in the world, 14.7% uh, of the population. It's so common that it's actually more prevalent than diabetes, asthma, and epilepsy all combined. And then we differentiate migraine into two different types, episodic versus chronic. Episodic is, is definitely much more common, but we do often see, especially in the headache center at UCSF, chronic migraine patients. And chronic migraine is defined by 15 days a month or more of headache for more than three months. And on at least eight of those days a month, the headache has features of migraine. Chronic migraine only affects about 2% of the population. We also then will see patients who have, there's migraine without aura, and then there's also migraine with aura. This is what we call a scintillating scotoma. Scintillating means flashing lights. Scotoma is a C-shape. It's, it's typically one of the most common types of migraine aura. And migraine aura, it's, the aura is a transient and fully reversible neurological symptom that typically occurs prior to the headache. It can also occur at the onset or during a headache. The duration is five to 60 minutes, typically, although sometimes it can be a little bit more, a little bit less. The most common is visual, and the most common type of visual is 
is here, the scintillating scotoma. Um, some patients also endorse, they feel like they have blurriness in a certain part of their vision. Um, sometimes it's difficult to read a portion of, of a book and that's how a patient knows that they're starting to get one. Sometimes some patients, it can be really hard to classify exactly what they see, but they know a portion of their vision is being affected. There is also sensory and language auras, sensory being more commonly numbness and tingling, um, language, sometimes people have some difficulty getting words out. And then very rarely, patients can also have actually weakness that occurs before migraine. Um, there's also migraine with brainstem aura, where patients can actually look like they're having a, a brainstem type stroke. They'll get reduced levels of consciousness, slurred speech, dizziness. Um, that's very rare though. And then also a retinal migraine is also something that's very rare as well. One thing that I will say too about migraine with aura, the way that we can differentiate that between somebody who's having a stroke, sometimes it can be, it can be challenging. And if anybody has any new type of neurological symptoms that are coming on quickly, we always recommend an urgent evaluation. But one differentiating factor typically between aura and stroke is that aura can actually occur um, over a period of time, it typically tends to start off kind of slow and then gradually increase. Um, some patients can also have both visual and sensory aura. And often with these, um, we can see patients who they first start to notice the visual symptoms. And then several minutes later, the sensory symptoms start and it, it gradually progresses. Where if somebody is having a stroke, typically the symptoms are pretty sudden at onset of um, they lose vision or they lose sensation um, a little bit more suddenly. And then typically after somebody has migraine with aura, uh, then they'll get a headache um, that, that follows that meets that criteria for migraine. When we're unclear, if somebody is this migraine? Um, maybe there's a few atypical features. Some other things that we tend to ask our patients include whether they have a family history of migraine. We do think that migraine has um, a genetic basis. And so if somebody has several people in their family who have migraine, um, we tend to think that it may be more likely of the diagnosis actually a history of motion sickness. Um, that's thought to be what we call somewhat of a migraine marker. A history of ice cream headaches. If somebody gets a brain freeze really easily, um, there's been some associations between that and migraine headache. If somebody's saying that they need to go lay down with a headache, they're having a lot of disability, um, we tend to think that's more likely migraine. Again, high disability. Actually, sometimes people feel like they have sinus headaches, but then they go see a, a sinus specialist and ear, nose, and throat, and they, they have some imaging, and all of the imaging looks normal. And that's because there are portions of um, uh, part of the, the nerves in the brain that can become inflamed and, and aggravated during migraine, and, and patients can sometimes actually feel some congestion with their headache. Um, but it's actually just from migraine. 
And then also a history of infantile colic, which is also very interesting and something that's been more recently evaluated and um, discovered. And, and that's been done. There's a lot of work that's been done at UCSF, actually, in our pediatric neurology department by Amy Gelfand, discovering this link between infantile colic and migraine. Um, infantile colic used to be thought to be a GI, primarily GI illness, but it's, it's pretty notorious for not really responding well to a lot of different types of dietary interventions or um, different types of formula changes that, that often parents will make. And so this was determined based on the fact that mothers with migraine were twice as likely to have an infant with colic. And the odds of migraine in a prospective study were found to be increased five to six times if there was a history of infantile colic. Typically, the time period of infantile colic is two weeks old to three months old. And so it's thought that around the first two weeks of life is when visual perception is really increasing in infants. So, so could it be a bit of sensitivity to the light that's stimulating portions of the brain um, that are aggravating migraine? And then three months, typically when infantile colic improves is when the endogenous, the body's production of melatonin kind of takes on the, the more typical diurnal rhythm that we see with sleep-wake cycles. It causes sleep consolidation. Um, could that be potentially why the um, colic improves? A lot of this is still being researched, but, but definitely an interesting link between infantile colic and migraine. So what does cause migraine? We've definitely made a lot of progress in what we understand about migraine. In ancient times, migraines were actually felt to be due to divine or supernatural interventions. And a procedure called trephination was performed to potentially allow these demons to escape. And here you can see a picture of, of a trephination occurring, which is actually drilling a hole in the bone of the skull. And, you know, some of these patients didn't survive, but the, the few that did, I'm sure that headaches didn't improve after this procedure. The past 20 years, our understanding of what contributes to migraine has made a lot of significant advances. There was thought at a certain period of time, it was thought that migraine was just a, um, from the blood vessels. It was primarily a disease of just the blood vessels. But now we understand the trigeminovascular system is very heavily involved. Um, and even that diagram that Dr. Wong showed earlier, you could see that that's where a lot of our targets for migraine medication work. And again, migraine's thought to be um, a genetic illness. There hasn't been one gene specifically that we've identified as responsible. So it's thought to be uh, polygenic with uh, several different contributing uh, genetic factors. Um, I liked the diagram Dr. Wong showed earlier, but here's just another one to really kind of elucidate that you can see here in the brainstem. Again, you can see this trigeminal nerve, which is a very, very big cranial nerve, um, which is uh, has connections to the blood vessels where a lot of the chemicals that are thought to be involved in migraine are released. So when it comes to treatment for migraine, we, we think that migraine is best managed in the outpatient setting. 
it's definitely something where if a patient is having sensitivity to light and to sound, the emergency department typically doesn't tend to be too friendly to our migraine patients. When we think of migraine treatment, we separate it based upon the acute treatment. So this is as needed medication that's used at the onset of a headache to reduce the disability and pain from that attack. And we typically try to have patients limit these to no more than 10 days a month because it can cause what we call rebound headaches or medication overuse headache. So that's when, when patients are starting to have more than 10 days a month or more of migraine, we utilize preventive treatments. And these are medications or or therapies that are used daily or administered on a regular basis to prevent the frequency and severity of attacks. If a patient is having more than four headache days per month, or if the headaches are disabling, that's when we typically think about initiating preventive treatment. So our standard of care goals of outpatient acute migraine treatment include treating attacks effectively, rapidly, and consistently, restoring a patient's ability to function because migraines can be so disabling, optimizing self-care and reducing subsequent use of resources, providing cost-effective management. We obviously don't want the, the treatments to cause any type of adverse events, so causing minimal or no adverse events, minimal side effects, and ultimately minimizing emergency department visits. For our acute treatments, typically for mild or moderate attacks, we start with things like acetaminophen or Tylenol. We also uh, will utilize and encourage patients to utilize NSAIDs, things like naproxen or ibuprofen. And then moderate to severe attacks or poor response to NSAIDs or the acetaminophen or combo analgesics, we utilize medication called the triptans, which there are standard triptans that have been out for many years. There's also newer triptans, um, something called lismitidan. There's also medications called the ergots, DHE. Those were even... um, yeah, developed a little bit sooner than the triptans, but can be very effective. And now there's there's also newer medications, the CGRP receptor antagonist. Um, we call these the G-pants, and I'll talk a little bit more about them um, in upcoming slides. So just looking again at somewhat of this migraine pathophysiology of what we know, um, the triptan uh, medications typically do work on um, these 5-HT1BD, it's serotonin receptors um, that are located in the blood vessels, and it helps inhibit peptide release of some of the other chemicals that had been shown in the previous slide that then contribute to um, a lot of the pain signals being sent to the trigeminal nucleus caudalis and areas of the brain that contribute to migraine. So I'd mentioned that we don't like patients to use medications more than 10 days a month. Um, Specifically, the NSAIDs or triptans that can cause what we call uh, medication overuse headache or rebound headache. Um, Actually, opioids or opiates aren't something that we typically recommend for migraine treatment. It's thought that um, they just aren't is effective and they can contribute to rebound headaches quite a bit. There's medications called butal, they have butalbital in them, furacet. Those are actually a type of medication that um, 
was banned in some of the European countries because it can contribute to these rebound headaches so much and can be uh, quite addicting. So, so typically if we see a patient who is, comes in and they're taking a lot of these over-the-counter medications, uh, we like to have patients slowly wean off. When we're doing this, the headache can actually get worse before improving. It can take four to six weeks to notice the benefit after weaning. Um, this is also a time period where we'll start a preventive medication uh, to reduce the headache frequency and severity. And there's some evidence that complete cessation for two months uh, is just stopping at cold turkey for two months is the most effective. So when we think of the migraine preventive treatments, these we typically offer to any patient that's experiencing more than four headache days a month or high disability from headaches, as I mentioned before. It's important for us. We set expectations with our patients. We tell them it can take up to three months to see the full benefit from these. And the goals for the preventive treatment is to decrease the attack frequency by 50%, decrease intensity and duration, improve responsiveness to the acute treatments, to improve the function, decrease disability, and prevent the occurrence of medication overuse headache and the daily headache. We typically start at a low dose. Um, we follow up to see how the patient is doing. Some of these medications, we don't know the risk um, in pregnancy or there is a potential risk. So in women of childbearing age, we discuss contraception. It's typically a shared decision-making process between patients and the provider. And when we're choosing some of these medications, we're also considering other comorbid problems. And sometimes we can choose a medication that can help with potentially other comorbid disorders. So some of the medications that we use, and these are some of the older standard medications, is um, high blood pressure medications. Um, we also will use seizure medications, and we will also use antidepressants. Um, these all work in different parts of the migraine biology, but um, can all be quite helpful. We also use supplements to treat migraine, and this is often something good to start with for patients who prefer more natural treatment. Um, and they have some good levels of evidence, magnesium, riboflavin, CoQ10, melatonin um, are all something that we, we consider and discuss with patients. There was another supplement, Pedicytes or Butterbur. It actually had really wonderful evidence, but it does have potential for liver toxicity. So we no longer use that one. There's also now a lot of uh, new developments in the way of what we call neuromodulation devices. And these are ways in which, for example, the first one here is cephaly. It's stimulating the nerves that are above the eyebrows, um, below the skull, the superorbital nerves. And it's thought that those nerves actually by sending signals back to areas of the brainstem and the trigeminal nucleus caudalis can help decrease the pain signals from migraine. And so this is one that's available. There's also one that actually stimulates the vagus nerve. Again, this um, vagus nerve goes back to areas of the brainstem with the trigeminal nucleus caudalis and help, can help decrease a migraine attack when it's happening. Transcranial magnetic stimulation. This is actually something um, that's used for not just migraine. TMS can also be used for anxiety, depression. Um, it's used in a little bit of a different way for migraine treatment, but um, can be very effective. There's also some new, this one, Norivio Migra came out several years ago, but 
um, working on actually a distant pathway, a distant pain pathway, but um, can be helpful. And then there's a new device that just came out called Relivion that's targeting both the supraorbital nerves like this cephaly device, but it's also targeting these nerves in the back of the head called the occipital nerves that again, um, by stimulating these, it kind of feeds back into areas of the brainstem where migraine is generated. So these are some new advances uh, recently in the field of migraine that are exciting and promising and can be a good option for, for our patients. We also use Botox treatment for migraine. Um, this is something that um, there's a specific type of pattern that we utilize for migraine. It's thought that it works by actually not just relaxing the muscles, but at the nerve muscle junction is also some of the chemicals that are involved in migraine and pain. And so it helps by those two different mechanisms. We typically have to start with some of those other medications that I mentioned, the blood pressure, the antidepressant, the seizure medications. But if patients don't do well with those, or if we can't utilize those for some reason, Botox is a great treatment option. And then there's been a lot of new advances in the field of migraine, which is exciting um, in terms of these types of medications targeting um, this certain type of chemical, CGRP. So what is CGRP? It's a calcitonin gene-related peptide. It's a small neuropeptide that's found throughout the brain and body, and it's highly prevalent in that trigeminovascular system that we talked about is so involved in migraine. Researchers discover that there's high levels of CGRP in migraine sufferers during an attack. And so these are, I'm sure if any of you watch TV, you've seen a lot of commercials recently for migraine. Um, a lot of these medications are targeting this CGRP pathway. And there's two different types. There's one that's a small molecule CGRP receptor antagonist. These are oral medications um, that are targeting the receptor for CGRP. Um, there's three different types, Brojapant, uh, Remegapant, Atojapant. Um, they have differing indications, whether it's helpful just for acute treatment or acute and preventive based upon the medication. And then there's also now these medications called monoclonal antibodies, which are basically, looks like the immune system so that it can circulate into the system for a period of time, um, but it's also targeting CGRP at either the receptor or it targets actually CGRP itself. And there's four of these that are available. So when do we use these new treatments? Because these new treatments are very exciting. We often have a lot of patients who come to us wanting to start these initially. Uh, the American Headache Society is the main headache society that um, headache specialists go to for research publications, for conferences. They came out with a position statement that said basically, in order to use these treatments, the patient obviously has to have a diagnosis of migraine. If a patient experiences at least moderate disability, and again, similar to the Botox, we typically still will start with some of the more standard tried and true uh, blood pressure, seizure medications, antidepressants before trying one of these. But it is still a very exciting 
uh, new development in the field of migraine to have these migraine-specific medications. The efficacy has been demonstrated in phase two and phase three randomized controlled trials. Similar efficacy to Botox, but one of the benefits is they may potentially work faster for patients where Botox can sometimes take up to several months to see the benefit. Um, these are typically well-tolerated constipation, a little bit of an injection site reaction. One thing that we do note is they, in the clinical trials, they were studied in fairly healthy patients. So just something we keep in mind in terms of other comorbid conditions and unknown if it's safe in pregnancy. Um, but these are quite exciting to have in the field of migraine. For migraine, we also utilize nerve blocks. Again, kind of working on that pathway similar to those devices that I mentioned. We're targeting some of the, the peripheral nerves that then thought to send signals to um, more centrally where the migraine is generated. We utilize um, greater and lesser occipital nerve blocks. There's this occipital nerve that um, comes out kind of from the base of the, the skull that can get really irritated in patients with migraine. We also can target the sphenopalatine ganglion. Um, this is actually kind of on the side behind one of the sinuses. Um, it's just a little catheter that we will utilize to sprinkle a little bit of an anesthetic um, targeting that, that area of nerve fibers. Um, and then one thing that also is good to know is because a lot of medications can't be utilized in pregnancy because of the potential risk, nerve blocks are something that we often do in patients who are pregnant, um, and particularly in anesthetic ropivacaine, um, we know to be fairly safe in pregnancy. One thing that we offer at UCSF that's unique, um, and I think we're one of the only centers on at least the West Coast to offer this, is elective admission. Uh, through our hospital program for patients who have really refractory headache and refractory migraine. And through this program, we administer IV medication uh, to break the headache cycle. And there's a couple of different medications that we utilize, dihydroergotamine, chlorpromazine, thorazine, and sodium valproate. These are infusions that we administer over four to five days, and it can take four to six weeks to see benefit but can be something that's very helpful for our patients who really have tried and failed a lot of the other medications that I've mentioned. Um, and this can really help break up that migraine cycle. Something that's important that we talk about with all of our migraine patients is that non-pharmacological treatment options can be really helpful. Um, starting with just getting a headache diary. We tell all of our patients to start a headache diary and to see if they can identify any particular triggers that may be not the cause of the migraine, but something that's triggering it. Sleep is crucial. Um, parts of the brainstem, the hypothalamus are involved in migraine and, and actually just getting really good sleep can be helpful for migraine. Managing stress, getting good hydration, trying to minimize caffeine use, um, small frequent meals with protein. We tell our patients that that can help minimize glucose spikes, which can contribute to migraine. Limiting artificial sweeteners, preservatives, things like that potentially can trigger migraines for some patients. And then there is a lot of good evidence that moderate regular exercise can be really helpful for migraine prevention.
Also some other types of non-pharmacological treatment that is a bit newer. We know that actually blue light generates large wavelengths that can cause the brain to be a little bit more active um, and can actually contribute to people being more awake as well as can contribute more to migraine. And actually green wavelengths can be relaxing to the brain, can help soothe pain, um, and can help reduce migraine sensitivity to light as well as migraine attacks. And so two different strategies, uh, blue light blocking glasses that I know even a lot of people have picked up in the pandemic from all of the screen time um, is something that, that has been around for a little while. And then this is something that was recently developed. It's called Alley Lamp. And it's a green lamp, but it's it's been developed specifically for uh, very specific green wavelengths that can be very helpful for migraine. Some other things that we utilize in non-pharmacological treatment, pain psychology, having chronic pain and having chronic migraine can cause a lot of disability in patients and, and anxiety and depression. Um, so targeting that through some stress reduction, something called biofeedback, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, a specific type of therapy can be helpful. Mindfulness-based stress reduction. There is some evidence that acupuncture can be helpful. Um, and then we often have patients who, who want to be educated themselves and really want to, to dive into all of these different types of resources more. Um, so these are always uh, a few different resources that we will refer patients to. The American Migraine Foundation which is a great resource. They have a lot of different great articles about migraine itself and treatment options. And then Miles for Migraine, this is a really great advocacy group. Um, they run races throughout the country to raise awareness for migraine um, and also help donate money to further research and advancements um, in the treatment of migraine. And with that, um, I will close. Thanks, Dr. Michael. And we have some already great questions from our participants. So uh, one person asked about aura. So we know we usually think of aura as happening before migraine and sometimes even during migraine. But what about aura without headache? Yeah, that's a great question. We can see that happen. Um, where patients can get a migraine aura without headache. Um, it's, it's a reason to talk to, you know, your specific physician about that to make sure that there aren't any abnormal features associated with it um, to make sure that potentially it isn't something else going on, but, but we can see that happen. Patients can have the aura, but without the pain. And then um, people have tension headaches and migraines that come on at different times and in response to different therapies and medications. Um, one participant is on several preventives and the headaches are under control, but she still gets headaches time from time to time. And will headaches ever stop? patients who have migraine? It's a good question. So we unfortunately, despite the advances that we've made in migraine in recent years, we don't have a cure for migraine yet. And really when it comes to migraine treatment, it's 
it's management of trying to control the migraines as best as possible with all of those therapies that, that I've mentioned. So um, sometimes it can take a combination of things, both the therapeutics, as well as also some of the non-pharmacological things. Often, if we find that one treatment isn't working after a period of two to three months, um, it would be something to talk to your physician about, about potentially switching to something else that may be more effective. I hope that answers the question. Yeah. Do we know anything about the natural history of migraine? Like how it progresses? Do people with chronic migraine always have chronic migraine? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so we do think that there can be a progression from episodic migraine to chronic migraine. Um, there's been research that looks at, you know, how does that happen? Are there certain patients that are more susceptible to it? Um, one thing that we do know is that, you know, getting good adequate control of the episodic migraine when it occurs um, can actually be something that will help um, from the progression to a chronic migraine. So whether it's through over-the-counter medications or some of the specific acute medications from your doctor or some of the lifestyle things, you know, trying to um, get the episodic migraine under control can, can help um, prevent the progression to chronic migraine. There are some patients though, and we don't know exactly why, but they just, they start with chronic migraine when they're young um, and it, it can kind of progress a bit more quickly. Um, but, but by managing some of the, the lifestyle and like I mentioned, episodic, that can be potentially helpful to prevent the progression to chronic migraine. And you mentioned in your talk that there's some food triggers, like artificial sweeteners and such. Are there any foods that might help with headaches? Oh, that's a good question. There's still a lot of research that we need to do in the field of headache. Um, it has been thought that certain types of um, oh, there was a recent research study about certain types of, I believe. I don't know if you know this, Dr. Wong, fish oil or was it branch-chained amino acids? There's been some research on it, but... Um, yeah, I think I've seen some for chronic pain, but I don't, I haven't seen anything specifically for headache yet. Yeah, I know it's something that they're, they're doing research on, but there hasn't been an abundance of research that really says this is going to be helpful. Um, and I know that uh, magnesium can be used to treat headaches. And in, it seems like people who have magnesium deficiency, those patients really benefit from magnesium supplementation with their headaches. Um, have you heard anything about tryptophan deficiency in migraine? Yeah, that's a Good question. I mean, tryptophan can be closely tied also to serotonin. Um, some of the medications that we use, um, like some of the antidepressants and the tryptans can involve serotonin receptors. Um, but I haven't heard specifically about a tryptophan deficiency in migraine. So eating turkey doesn't help treat migraine. 
No, not not that we know of. Do you know this is a another natural history of migraine question, but is there a typical age of onset for headaches and if children have headaches, can they grow out of them? Great question. Yeah, so you know, it's thought that one period of time for the incidence or the development of migraine can be around puberty. Um, it's thought that hormones can uh, potentially create kind of a bit of an on switch for people. So, so um, you know, as people are a bit younger in teenage years, um, we certainly can see migraine occur in, in children um, as well, though. Um, but, but around kind of puberty is a time period also for women, um, pregnancy, if a woman is kind of postpartum or even during pregnancy, sometimes we see migraines also, um, peak around that time period, but, but typically migraines do start a bit earlier in life. Um, so again, if somebody is, 70 years old and they're having migraine for the first time, that is atypical. And then another question, um, do we know why migraines fluctuate over time at all? I think you might have mentioned it earlier. We kind of don't know exactly what causes migraines, so we don't know why some people can have long pauses without migraine. Exactly. Yep. It's, it's still something that we just don't entirely know. Back to the supplements. Uh, do we know what form of magnesium works best for migraines? There's like five or six different <laughs> magnesiums you can buy over the counter. Yeah, I don't think it's really been shown that one specific formulation is much superior. Um some of it I tell my patients is just based upon tolerability, some types of magnesium. Magnesium, one of the biggest side effects is it can cause some loose stools. Um, so there are certain formulations, magnesium oxide or magnesium glycinate tend to be um, a little less of a laxative effect than something like magnesium citrate. Um, but but I believe there's been trials done on, I think a lot of them were uh, magnesium glycinate oxide. And then is there any relationship with migraine and as like secondary causes of headache, like CSF leak? Yeah, good question. Um, so yeah, it's something that we typically think, um, you know, migraine itself is its own diagnosis and its own disease process, whereas a CSF leak is a secondary headache and it's its own process. So a CSF leak wouldn't necessarily cause the disease of migraine, but certainly if somebody already has kind of the, the genetics or the predisposition for migraine, having a secondary headache disorder like a CSF leak could make migraine a lot worse. And another, my, we know migraine is um, the most common problematic primary headache, but a lot of people also have cervicogenic headache. Um, what are your thoughts on 
uh, that and how is it treated? Yeah, that's another great question. So cervicogenic headache, it's thought that there are certain parts of the cervical spine, especially the top parts of the cervical spine that are that are close to the brainstem that have what we call kind of afferents or um, can send input to parts of the brainstem and can also refer pain to um, the back of the head. Um, and so some people, we, we will often see what we call kind of a cervicogenic migraine is that they may have arthritis in the top part of the, the neck that's contributing to headaches, but because of some of the connections to the trigeminovascular complex, the headaches can look like migraine headaches. And then vice versa, the migraine biology, um, having migraine can actually send signals to that top part of the cervical spine and patients who have migraine can get a lot of neck pain and they can feel like they are um, having more kind of neck issues or they think they have issues with neck arthritis when in fact it's just from migraine itself. Do you treat cervicogenic headaches any differently from migraines? So if we do on if, if based upon the history of the patient and also based on imaging, if we see there is an area in the cervical spine that can be responsible, um, that can often be an area where there are certain procedures, um, nerve blocks that are a bit more targeted to that area um, that can be performed and can be helpful. Um, we also We'll emphasize things like physical therapy um, and then also sometimes more neuropathic type medications can be helpful as well. And CGRP medications have been really exciting um, since they came out in 2018 and a game changer for a lot of patients. Do we have any information on how long patients can take CGRP? medications? It's a good question. So, so far the clinical trials and the long-term safety data that we have show that they are safe to take long-term. Um, but again, some of that data is limited to the period of time that we have. So whether these are going to be safe in 20 years or 30 years, um, at least from the data that we have so far, it looks like they are. There isn't anything that's been raised that's of concern. Um, but again, they are they are newer and yeah, just recently out in the past uh, three to four years. Any idea why Botox helps with migraine? The toxin that's injected into the muscles? Yeah, so it's not that you know, we do do a certain protocol with locations of the forehead, the sides of the head, the back of the head, the neck and the shoulders, but it's really thought that it's the amount and the dose. And it's thought that, um, there is actually CGRP receptors at the nerve muscle junction. And so it can actually help, um, target CGRP, um, that way. And then also just if there is any kind of paracranial muscle tension, um, it can help relax those muscles as well. Yeah, it's 
sounds like um, your talk generated a lot of great questions. Um, and these are all really good. What has been most exciting for you practicing headache medicine uh, since your fellowship? I think the development of these newer treatment options and not just, you know, the CGRP medications are exciting, but there's also been the devices um, that have come out that have been um, just really exciting to help reduce the disability that patients have from, from migraine. I think another thing is there has been more advocacy for migraine that's been going on to raise the, the awareness and to reduce the stigma. There's a big stigma that's been associated with migraine where some people, if, if you don't experience migraine, I don't, it's, it's common. Somebody will say, Oh, it's just a headache. You're fine. You know, or people always have different types of advice, but, but migraine is, is more than just a headache. It's the sensitivity to light, the disability. Um, and so, so, more awareness about how disabling it can be in the reduction of the stigma, I think has also been really exciting. Thanks, Dr. Michael. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.